0: Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm.
1: Melbourne's Drive Time Radio program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia.
0: You're listening to Brainwaves on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm your host, Nerida Lennon. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which 3CR resides the Wawandari people of the Kula Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In today's episode, we're diving into part one of a two-part series featuring a panel event hosted by Melbourne University's Contemplative Study Centre. Panelists discuss how various contemplative traditions interpret mental health, as well as the significance of contemplative practices and spirituality in fostering emotional well-being. This episode contains themes that may cause distress for listeners relating to sexual abuse and manslaughter. Please do what's best for you and tune out if you need to. If you do need support after the show, please reach out to Sexual Assault Services Victoria on 1800 806 292. Okay, let's get into the show.
1: Well, hello and welcome. Thanks for coming along on this beautiful day and taking the time to come indoors uh, for this latest installment, I suppose, in the Contemplation Conversation series. Today's event is called Mindful Traditions, Exploring Mental Health Through Contemplative Practices, and it's hosted by the Contemplative Studies Centre here at the University of Melbourne. I'm Paul Barclay, broadcaster and journalist, and it's a terrific pleasure to be here. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land we are on, and I would also like to pay my respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians present today. We are joined by a wonderful panel of speakers today, and let me introduce them to you. On my left is Jess Hewen, a meditation teacher in the insight tradition, Jess has trained in traditional Buddhist monastic settings in interfaith contexts of meditative inquiry and uh, also within long periods of solitary forest practice. Uh, While deeply informed but not bound by tradition, her style is very much grounded in contemporary life. Next to Jess we have Sara Sabah, founding director and president of Benevolence Australia, Sarah has been active in the field of youth and community work in Melbourne for over 25 years and Benevolence is a grassroots community organization that sees itself as part of the global scholarly and spiritual revival aiming to reclaim the narrative on Islam Which I think is particularly important at the moment and conscious ethical living in the modern world Welcome to Sarah and hmm. on the end of the panel, hmm. I said I was just going to introduce you just as Sunum, but perhaps I should give you your, your full title of <laughs> Venerable on, so- I hope I've got that right. Did I did I bugger that up? Uh, I
2: think that's um, good. it's close
1: enough. <laughs> okay, Sunum is a chaplain and yes, yes, a chaplain and uh, doctoral research candidate at Western Sydney University. a Past chair of the Australian Sangha Association and Buddhist member of the Religious Advisory Committee to the Australian Defence Forces uh, and has long been active in chaplaincy and spiritual care, having managed the prison chaplaincy program and established the spiritual pastoral care program for the Buddhist Council of Australia. Please make our speakers welcome. Now, I thought it would be good to start off with, to get a sense of your individual stories, um, so I'll come to you first of all, Jess. Your your, your personal journey, if you like, if you like, within your um, contemplation tradition, how how that's influenced perhaps your understanding of mental wellbeing, mm. or yeah. something I like
3: that. Yes, or <laughs> <laughs> run with it. <laughs> well, it was interesting because we just had a mm. panel this morning and started to talk about this, but it definitely began with some grit and some vulnerability. And uh, like many teenagers, a kind of metamorphic crisis where I started asking a lot of questions. And I do think the driving question was, um, as I was quite wild in my youth, explorative and yeah. and, and, And the driving question was, how can we actually be with suffering and our inevitable pain as a human being in a wise way? And what I was seeing around me at the time, um, you know, like a lot of addiction, and I was seeing pe- um, friends with through the addictions and drug use and different things, mental health issues, and yeah, and confronted at that time, like feeling I there, there was a different way to live that wasn't leaping over suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 at that time too, like because I'd been in a lot of different situations and had been in very terrifying situations where I'd been confronted with suffering in a pretty extreme way that mm. had shocked me. Um, it, it was quite. It was a very strong question for my own mind too, that there's something deeper in the mind than what's just presenting in this moment. Mm. That there is a deeper reference point for my being mm. that isn't just in the mind and in thinking. And that was part of what sort of led me through.
1: a yeah. uh, Suffering is such a loaded word to isn't it It has a lot of meanings but you're i think talking about a kind of existential suffering a kind of a suffering that's specifically related to how you were living or how do you want to just give a bit more context to how you were using that term
3: yes well i think like well so friends like seeing drunk drug addiction yeah and um Using that term of people will mean experiencing feelings and not knowing how to, um, ha- ha- the support to meet them wisely. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And also normalising levels of, like some suffering's just normal, yeah. but growing a certain robustness to to meet our experience. Mm. And so I was just feeling, there was a lot of friends who just wanted to keep having fun, keep going with it, just keep it all yep. moving, keep it all great. And you know, my parents were breaking up and so I was yeah. seeing like this rift there and so it was just this, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to, yeah, to, yeah. to that and how does one process deal with that, move forward? Mm. Sarah, mm. How, 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 would, how would you describe your, your personal journey to, to where you are and how you see things?
4: Yeah, so probably similar to what uh, Jess was saying is that, I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, you use the term suffering. In the Islamic tradition, we use the term tribulation. And so mine started at the age of 14, when I began my spiritual path, <clears throat> when my mother passed away. <clears throat> and, um, and that was a lot of pain, obviously. And I, my mom, I came from a single household, my mom raised us, so I was one of the youngest of five children. And so her passing and watching her going through the pain and being by her bedside, the entire three months before passing away, and then passing forced me to ask those big questions in life at a very young age, where usually you don't usually ask those questions. And the questions were, where did my mother go? What is life about? Is there life after death? The big questions. And although I was not brought up in a Muslim household in terms of a practicing Muslim household, I I knew Islam. And so for me, it was literally on the day of her funeral, that I held on to God. And I began my spiritual practices on that day. Mm. And if we're talking about mental health, this is the late 80s. We didn't have language for it mm. back then. But for me, what spirituality, what my practices did, is it created that, that zone where I was held. So I didn't have a time to even think about the anxiety and the stress and the pain of what I was going through, or the suffering that I was going through, because my practices really held me ever so gently, mm. and I've have since then have had a really positive experience with them and maintained them. So
1: it was mm. bereavement coupled with a kind of curiosity that had pre-existed
4: no, it did not pre-exist. Right. The curiosity, I, I was 14 at the time, so I, there was nothing I was interested in with regards to faith or spirituality or I was <laughs> doing what any young girl was doing, uh, music, you know, fashion, all of that, um, school. It, 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 it's the pain that threw me into this curiosity because other than that, it would have taken me into an abyss of absolute confusion and pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And it was almost, I chose to not take that path. And I don't know if I chose it. Like yeah. I, I'm a woman of faith. I believe God took me out of it. And so that's the path that led me into the practices and spirituality.
1: And Sonim. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so food for thought. I, I mean,
2: uh. we've already had that opportunity to kind of yep. hear each other. And I think the commonality for us is that there was a prime um, split really um, and you know, for me, I was a very spiritual child. Um, I, you know, I was born in the early fifties, and you know, it was um, a time where you know no one talked about anything of spirit or heart, or you know, it was a. Um, and but I was a very spiritual child, and of course, at that time, Christianity was was um, the only visible. Um, faith tradition in, in Australian society. You know, so so I went, you know, I went along to church and Sunday school and look, Of my siblings, I was the one who wanted to keep going. <laughs> they reached a certain age and my parents said, OK, you don't need to go anymore. But it did, you know, it fed something in me. But I guess, you know, I was actually, you know, I, I'm not really said this publicly publicly, um, but I was sexually abused by a relative when I was, um, you know, nearly eleven years old, and um, and you know my mother came, you know, to pick me up, and um, she came to the door and she said to me, "Well, we won't talk about this, will we?" And you know, so I suppose uh, what happened for me it was, I just buried it. But but you know, by by within within a year. I started to unravel in all sorts of ways, but I didn't understand. I had no idea that that was yet had any influence. I lost my trust at that point. I was a very trusting, you know. That was my natural, um, but my trust was broken, and um, and I spiraled um, out of control, crazy, you know, like Jess, rebel, and you know, ended up spiraling into the mental health system, and um, and that. You know that didn't. You know that was just another form of punishment and banishment, and um, yeah. So so it was it was a really torrid time where I had really no idea what was going on. I just knew that I was hurting very deeply, and that no one was interested to try to help me understand it. Um, and, and, you know, I, was, I, I had this tough exterior. People would say to me, oh, you're so strong. But of course, you know, I was, I was deeply crying and, you know, really deeply help, helpless inside. Um, and so, you know, I guess I, I um, you know, I managed to get through, through school and um, I, there was always one, at least one person where I was at times like that in my life who would just see something else in me and would help me to, you know, to kind of stay afloat. Um, and you know, so I I, you know, I like Jess, you know, I I, you know, used drugs for a while and you know, I just did those things that are very common for people who've experienced, you know, a degree of of break of, of trust and um and then I was saying to the to the people this morning, you know, the students this morning, that, um, you know, I was in, in a, well, in fact, you know, this was a couple of years later. So I was around in the time of the women's movement and, you know, setting up the women's refuges and, you know, taking to the streets and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, but I was working in a refuge. Um, it was early days of the refuge movement. Um, and... Um, Without going to a long story, I mean, there were two women staying there and they had both had teenage girls, um, 15 years old. And, you know, they, they went to stay a night in, um, you know, a friend of mine, her flat or her unit we call now was underneath where I was living. And so this friend went away and said, look, get them, let them have that space. And um, anyway, kind of a long story short, um, they were drinking and doing all sorts of stuff and one of them stabbed to death, the other one. Mm. And it was, mm. you know, I mean, I, I was just catatonic actually, I just, you know, I, I didn't, and, but you know, I managed to sort of say to the rest of the, um, you know, the collective that I was working with at the refuge, we really need to talk about this. We really need to, you know, unpack it a bit mm. and no one wanted to talk about it. Um, and so I ended up back in a, in in um, you know a psychiatric centre, and a friend of mine said, Look, "Why don't you try something else that's not working for you?" Um, and so I went to stay in a, um, a yoga ashram. Some of you may know Satchinanda Yoga, that was just being really just new in Australia at that point, and they were building the ashram up in um, Mangrove Mountain in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And I went there really broken and. You know, just no, no capacity for anything, and um, and I stayed there. You know, I, I, you know, as I said this morning, I sat by the river and, and just sobbed for a couple of weeks, and and then you know was was assigned to this, this activity of making mud bricks to build the, you know, the the huts for little houses for people, um, and it was in the it was actually in the in the in the mud pool that I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange. Like, you know, in making mud bricks, you have this big pool of water and mud and, and you get in with bare feet and you just stomp to try and make a consistency, you know, <laughs> and people are putting straw and stuff in, you know, that's a mixture. And it was so liberating. It was like all of this stuff, you know, all of this, you know, kind of out-of-body fear, pain, hurt, all this sort of stuff, it just landed and, you know, and and I was, I was, you know, I was grounded. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that was really the beginning. And I found I stayed with the community for a while and I le- learned to meditate and I did yoga. And really, for the rest of, you know, 50 plus years since then, that's been my life, you know. I, one way or another, that's been a go-to for me. And, yeah, so...
1: amazing story perhaps i'd i think there's two themes coming through here one about spirituality being a spiritual person that term spirituality and spiritual and also the contemplative practice that is often a part of that just tell us tell us a bit about how you might understand that term spiritual and spirituality yourself and the types of contemplative practice that, um, that you engage with and how it connects with your notion mm. of spirituality.
3: Okay, yes. I was thinking about that because I could answer that in so many different ways. Yeah. But one it's way- It's a big I, question. I, I so no, but what I would say one way, some kind of method or a practice that you can get behind that's aligned with your deeper values, you know? because we can all say, I'm in this body, don't know how long, when you really let that land, it does make sense to love. It does make sense to give your deepest presence to each other, to yourself. Mm. It makes sense, I would like to settle into my body and my life while I'm here. Like that's the the grounding context or the leveling context, you know? So there's that, and we can have moments of revelation around that. We might all have that, it's like, oh yes, life is so important, you know, and transient. That now gets played to aeroplane music and watered yeah. down and we, we almost like get bored.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> but how do we stay on our toes with that? Yeah. And I think a practice for me is a method that allows us to keep clearing away, away the dross, yeah. just to stay awake and alert, maybe even some innocence of attention, mm. to look at things freshly. Um, and that takes some discipline in the service of that kind of alertness. Mm. So, so someone, and then so in the say the Buddha Dharma tradition where I was trained,
4: you
3: you could break it down very simply to three main orientations. First, you've got a kind of ethical orientation. It's like, well, I don't live in a silo. My practice isn't just on the mountaintop. What I do, what I say, what I speak, how I move impacts the space around me. I'm a relational being. Mm. So there is. A cleaning up of, of ethics, you know, but, but again, not in this, in the Dharma, it's not like a moral ethic on top. It's like for getting more sensitive, you kind of fear. well, if I do that, that's going to really <laughs> impact someone. You know, it's yeah. an internal compass that you grow through practice. Mm. So there's a, that kind of ground, you know, that the intention behind practice isn't just so I can get more efficient to earn more money and yeah. be a better business person or something. There is actually a heart relationship to what i'm doing and it's not transactional it's no. not transactional yeah. I'm, I'm willing to feel life deeper than the transaction mm. and then you'll have a whole lot of practices that help you and probably we all have them in our traditions to settle the mind mm. so like as a teenager i was like oh my god if my mind's li- like this for the rest of my life <laughs> i don't want to be here you know i do not want to be in my own head yeah but then i was like i was like ah oh, no i started to think no actually there's these techniques that help us settle down mm. that help us get a broader perspective which is beautiful when we feel that we're not just slammed up against our thoughts there's some space to see because some of our thoughts are trustworthy and some of them clearly aren't you know some of them are moved by fear some of them moved by ease some of them are moved by anyway that and then so you'll have the ethics then you have the grounding practices we call the serenity practices just to start to see and then the wisdom practices the insight practices ways of seeing. Ways of being with our experience that elicit a certain response, and in my tradition, any way that sees that liberates suffering, that loosens things up, that brings more ease to the being, mm. is an insight. And that's like, you know, like you could say, you know, sometimes we just can't see things, and then you get the steadiness, then you can see what's in your field, and then you know how to work with it. We kind of know what our su- we need to know what our suffering is before we can actually then wisely respond to it. Mm. Yeah, that's as pithy as I can be. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I think. Sorry, you gave us, uh, I suppose in a way, a more thorough explanation of your spiritual background in Islam. Mm. So for you, the idea of a higher power is contributing to your contemplative practice. Mm. Give us an idea, though, about how it in turn contributes to your emotional Mm. Mm. well-being.
4: So it's a good question. So in Islam, we don't necessarily differentiate between, so we're talking about mental health, but what we're really talking about, in, we're not, when, we, when I refer to mental health, we're, we're talking about the entire body, mind, body, spirit, emotions, the entire being. We can't just do practices for our mental health or do things just for our mental health. We're talking about our emotional, social well-being. We're talking about the entire person. And so, you know, asking what is the spirit, and we live in an age, and I think you were saying that in a previous session, people don't want to identify with religion because it comes with a lot of baggage, but everybody is really happy to take on the word spiritual. Mm. I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. If we really unpack that, I'd be interested, what does that mean? Because everybody has a different understanding. I'm spiritual, but not religious, There's a real fear of the term religious. And, you know, granted for various reasons. from an Islamic Muslim practice, the soul, the spirit is considered to be from the unknown, it's from God. And so the practices that what we're trying to do is that we know we have a physical body, we know we have a mind, and we know we have a body, mind, and spirit. And what we're trying to do with our practices is ensure that we're taking care of all those three areas simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And hence we have a physical uh, law but that physical law is to ensure that the spiritual and the emotional are taken care of, not just the practices, but however what my practices do, such as my five daily prayer, which is an obvious one. Any Muslim will tell you that the first thing that they will learn, even at the age of seven, so we teach children as young as seven, which is interesting because, you know, meditation, mm-hmm. the contemplative practices are usually taught later on, but I was in Bhutan a few years ago and it was phenomenal to see that, you know, Abu uh Buddhist tradition where children at school are learning, you know, meditation. Um, and so in Islam, by the age of seven, children are taught how to meditate, taught how to practice the Salat, which is the five daily disciplined uh, prayers. To your question, precisely, to, to refer to your question, how does that, how does that uh, cultivate or take care of my emotional needs? The idea is that I am, I am, first of all, know what I'm doing here. Like the big questions in life, I know what I'm doing here, I know who I am, I know what body I'm in, I know my purpose, I know my goal, I know my orientation, all right? That's grounding.
1: Yeah.
4: I know my orientation, I know what's going to happen to me after I exit this world, I'm not confused about anything. Okay, now let's get to work. Let's cultivate my purpose. And so the five daily prayers or practices very much keep me in line. And so they centre me and they allow me to put things in balance. And that's how I guess, just in a brief, Mm -hmm. uh, the five daily prayers are the most important ones that will align me.
1: I mean, that's pretty envy. I think people would be enviable Mm -hmm. of, I I don't know whether this is the right word, but the certainty Mm -hmm. with which the clarity mm-hmm. with which you live your life. Mm. And I would hazard to guess that a lot of the emotional disruption, anxiety, stress, whatever, mm. people suffer in various ways is accompanied by a lack of clarity, not just spirit, spiritual clarity, just clarity of direction absolutely uh, and so on.
0: You've been listening to Brainwaves on 3CR Community Radio and I've been your host, Narada Lennon. And that's the end of the first episode of this two-part series. Be sure to listen again next week to hear the second half of this insightful conversation. This episode can also be found online for those who want to listen again at www.3cr.org.au forward brainwaves. Thanks for listening, and I hope to catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.